Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Tonight we're looking at verses 14 through 22 as we continue our study in this book. Last week we heard the Apostle Paul warn Christians about temptation. Tonight we hear him tell Christians to flee idolatry. Let me invite you to hear God's word beginning... 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 14. We'll take it through 22. This is the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. This is God's word. May you write it on our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. uh, That we might see wonderful things in your word. Show us Jesus, we pray. Warn us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. For we ask it in his name. Amen. I was thinking that this may be the most politically correct or incorrect uh, the Bible gets. Speaking of those who aren't Christians worshiping demons. It's not something I think we want to say out loud to our neighbors. Paul warns the Corinthians to flee idolatry and he doesn't mince his words. Now look, the particular way that they were tempted to idolatry was the temptation to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols and to eat that in temples where those idols were being worshipped. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to go into those temples and eat that meat because then they would be participating in the worship of those gods. But I want to say this, they're... There are words in this for us, too, even if our neighbors don't invite us to temples dedicated to other deities and offer us meat sacrificed to those idols. So let me say first a few words about idolatry in general, from which we are to flee, and then the three reasons Paul commands us to flee idolatry. So those two main things. In the first place, then, idolatry. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee 
from idolatry. Now, what's idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping the wrong God or the true God in the wrong way. And it can be in our heart as well. It can be something that we do. Here's how to discover what your true God is. I think this is helpful. Matthew Henry put it this way. Ask your, or, or say to yourself this, what, whatever, let me say this to you. <laughs> whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that, whatever it is, We do, in effect, make a God of. Do you catch what he's saying? Martin Luther put it this way. A God is that to which we look for all good and where we resort for help in every time of need. Whatever is most valuable, we might say, that's your God. You love it more than anything. It's your deity. You need it more than anything. We're always then, we have to say this, tempted to make other things be God for us instead of Jesus. Calvin rightly noted, man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Everybody worships something, everybody lives for something, everybody serves something. And to flee idolatry is to have Jesus be the one you worship, Jesus be the one you serve Jesus be the one you live for, for, to have him be the source of all your good, the one to whom you look for all your good, and to have him to be your help in need, primarily. And if your life is not filled with Jesus, it will be filled with something else. Money, sex, pleasure, achievement, status, sports, family, something will fill your life. And if having that thing is the only way for you to be happy and not having it makes you constantly angry or leaves you in despair, it may just be that it has taken the place that God should have in your heart. As J.I. Packer says, in the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. And so we want to begin by saying, look, as Christians, this is what we confess. We're sinners, and we sin against the first and the second commandment. We have other gods in our hearts. This is what we need to be repenting of again and again. Our hearts are always tempted to love something or someone more than Jesus. And so we go astray, and God calls us back time and again. But there is... Um, another kind of idolatry, we might say, not just that which is in our heart and in our imagination, but there is a kind of idolatry that involves our practice of religious worship, what we do religiously, and giving religious worship to false gods or to the true God in a wrong way. That's the concern here in Corinth. Now, Paul addresses them affectionately. He wants them to hear him out. My dear beloved family is what he says to them. My brothers and sisters. Uh, He's not ashamed of them. He knows that they struggle with this. He knows these things are temptations to true Christians. So he addresses them affectionately. 
And he addresses them respectfully. I know you are sensible people, he says, verse 15. And you can think these things through and you can see it from this perspective. Hear me out, in other words, Paul says, and see if you don't agree with me. I'm sure that you will. Judge for yourselves if what I say is true. What I'm about to say is perfectly reasonable. Flee idolatry, he says. Don't toy with it. Don't see how close to it you can get without falling into it. Instead, run away from it. Now, before we go on to talk about all his arguments that they should bear in mind and agree with, let's just stop there and recognize this, that Paul is calling these Corinthians to do something that will take great courage and possibly bring an enormous amount of personal pain to them. I mean, think of it, friend. All around them are these pagan temples dedicated to the worship of all kinds of deities. Some of them used to attend those temples a lot. Some of them are still attending them. He's trying to get them to stop. And these are the kinds of places where their families and their friends would have gathered to worship, yes, and to celebrate life to throw birthday parties, to hold weddings, to entertain business clients. Let's go up to the uh, Temple of Zeus today. They've got lamb chops on the menu and they're fabulous. And Paul is telling them that they may have to say no to dear sweet Aunt Sally. They may have to decline the boss's or the client's invitation. There are going to be difficult choices ahead for them. Money may be lost. Relationships may be strained. Your own family might laugh at you for taking things so seriously. And I want to say this. Following Christ takes some backbone. And for us who naturally shrink from hard things, who are naturally people pleasers, we don't want anybody cross with us. It may be of some comfort to remember that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That Christ didn't shrink from persecution and he didn't try to please everybody and he lives in you to help you follow him. So flee idolatry, Paul says. Now why? Three arguments from this text he builds. There are three reasons to run from idolatry. One is it is inconsistent with for those who partake of the Lord's Supper to engage in idolatry. The second is it's demonic to engage in it. And in the third place, it's offensive to the Lord and may provoke him. It's inconsistent, it's demonic, and it's offensive to the Lord. Let's walk through those three things, okay? Uh, In the first place, he begins with, interestingly, the Lord's Supper at verse 16. He says to them, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What's he getting at? He's, he's, He's pointing them to this, partaking of this meal, which is what he's talking about. By faith, as we partake, we are participating in Christ and what he did for us. We are sharing in him. We're having fellowship with him, partnership with him, communion in him, in Jesus and him crucified. 
The cup of blessing is the cup that was set apart for the sacred use. You remember that at the Last Supper, that night Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. In other words, it was a cup with wine in it. And all of a sudden it became something that was very sacred. It stopped being something simply mundane, we might say, and become something sacred because Jesus set it apart from the mundane to something very special. He blessed it and set, apart, set it apart for a holy purpose. And it's the cup that we bless, he says. Uh, the cup of blessing that we bless. It's the cup that we pray over at the Lord's Supper and ask that God would set it apart for a holy use, that it might be blessed to us as a means of communicating to us the benefits of Christ's death. It's more than just a mere symbol is what Paul is saying. So you can't say, well, it's just a symbol, just like all these temple worship sacrifices. They're just symbols, and I'm not participating in any of the reality. No, it involves you in it. The word he uses is actually koinonia. We think we often hear that word if we've heard it in association with the word fellowship. But fellowship isn't just, you know, having a great time together. Fellowship is sharing life together. It's partnering together in the the ministry of the gospel and in the worship of God. And that's what Paul is saying. It happens here in communion. We are participating in the death of Christ. We are sharing the benefits of his death on our behalf. That's the point of it. So when you come to the Lord's table, you're communing with, partnering with, participating in. The reality of who Jesus is and what he did for you. Uh, in, in that sense, it's, it's designed, friends, to strengthen our faith. It's designed to be spiritually helpful to you. Uh, to, to minister the grace of God to you and persuade you again. And reassure you again of God's grace to you. Uh, Robert Bruce, the Scott preacher of the 16th century, who was the successor to John Knox in uh, some famous sermons on The Lord's Supper said this, By the sacrament, my faith is nourished. And so when I had but a little grip of Christ before, as it were betwixt my finger and thumb, now I get him in my whole hand. For the more my faith grows, the better grip I get on Christ. Listen, Christ holds me in his hand and nothing can snatch me out of his hand. But I have such little, weak, fickle faith. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And the Lord says, I'll help you. Come and hold the bread and hold the wine and eat and drink. And and in faith, by the work of the Spirit, you will be nourished in the grace of Jesus. And you'll grow in your reassurance of his love. So, Paul says, we participate in Christ. We Share in him, and it involves you not only in him, verse 17, but it's a participation with everybody else who is with you at the meal and in the meal, because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, we all partake of the one bread. Everybody who comes to the table, he says, not only enters into communion with and shared life and partnership with Christ, but we enter into communion with and shared life with and partnership with everyone else who's at the table. And so Paul is saying, look, at these religious feasts, 
It involves the worshiper and all the other worshipers in the one who is being worshipped. And so if you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are declaring and practicing your unity with Christ and his people. You come together to receive the same food, you confess the same faith in the same Savior, and your commitment to the same life of following him. Well, in the same way, Paul's saying to them, if you were to go to those pagan rituals, and you would be, whether you meant to or not, you would be expressing your solidarity with them and your belonging to those people in worshiping the God whom they serve. And Paul says you cannot have it both ways. In coming to the table of the Lord, you are proclaiming Jesus to be the Savior, Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, and he alone is Lord. And then you cannot then behave as if there was some truth or authenticity to the pagan worship of idols. So Paul says, flee idolatry and flee that pagan temple. It's inconsistent with the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But the second reason he says it is this. This is where he gets so politically incorrect. Flee idolatry because actually what's happening in non-Christian worship is the worship of demons. Look at his language, friends. Verse 19, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons, and not to God. So, so let's work through what he's saying there. What do I imply, that the food offered to these idols, or that the idol is anything? No, Paul, Paul's already established in chapter 8. That the idol is nothing. It's not a thing. There is no deity standing behind the idol in that temple. It doesn't exist. Therefore, the food offered to that idol is nothing. It's no big deal, actually. The meat is just meat. It isn't poison. It isn't suddenly super spiritual food. Eating doesn't actually connect you to a deity because that deity doesn't actually exist in those false places of worship. Paul concedes the point. He's restating chapter 8. But then he goes on. He presses the point. He says, but I want you to understand that actually it's offered to demons. There is no God there. But if a person wants to believe there's a God there, we might say, you know what Satan will do? He'll send one of the demons, the fallen angels, to impersonate the God of that which the people think is there, and the demon will do enough to keep the people worshiping that idol. The worshiper may think there's no God there, and there really isn't. But what's really happening is that a fallen angel comes along and receives the adoration, the worship being given to that idol. And that demon ensnares the person into continuing to bow down and serve that idol. And that demon enslaves them into false thinking and false worship. Why do you think, as another pastor asked the question, why do you think somebody would bow down to a rock all his life? Because a demon will impersonate the God he thinks is in the rock and do enough stuff to keep the guy 
believing the rock is real. There's a delusion going on. But a dangerous one is what Paul is saying. The offerings are, even if the offerer doesn't intend it to be that, or would reject the very idea, as undoubtedly our our friends would who aren't Christians. They would reject the idea that they're offering anything to a demon. And yet, Paul says, they are in fact doing so. Which raises the question. People will say, well, aren't all religions really the same? You know, they focus on God and they tell you to love your neighbor. No, Paul says, they're not at all the same. As John will put it, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the Father. We live in a pluralistic age and country, right? Where people are free to worship how they want and whomever they want and whatever they want, basically. And increasingly, our neighbors are not Christians. They say maybe 20% of America is churched these days. That means that they actively attend some kind of Christian church. 80% of our neighbors do not. They stay at home. They attend elsewhere. They've chucked the church. They've chucked Christianity. And so many of our neighbors may in fact be Muslims or Hindus or Jews or agnostics or skeptics or something else. And we are glad to live in a country where people have the right to worship God in accordance with their own conscience. We want that right for ourselves. We don't want that taken from us as Christians. But it is a very different thing to participate in the worship with them. And this we must not do. Our non-Christian neighbors may not intend to worship demons, but they do, Paul says. So for the Corinthians who are Christians, they must not go into those temples, even if they don't intend to worship those pagan deities. They must not participate in the activity of the worship that included the meal of the meat that had been offered to that idol. You cannot, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, Paul says. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This table is the table of the Lord. He is its host and we are his invited guest and he presides. But there is a table of demons, he says, and the demons serve as host and the people are their guests. And we must not do both. And so Paul is saying to us, back that principle up a little bit. We must not try to mix Christianity with other religions and mix our devotion to Christ with devotion to other deities or say, you know, it's all a wash and it doesn't really matter. I can get away with it because Jesus knows I really worship Jesus only, but I just dabble in all these other things that my neighbors dabble in. No, we must not, Paul says. And so based on that principle, Christians have historically refused to take this in a different direction than the Apostle Paul does because our temptations are generally different. On that principle, Christians have historically refused to enter into prayer with people of other religions. Not that a Christian wouldn't pray for their non-Christian friends. Not that a Christian wouldn't even pray with their non-Christian friends, praying to Jesus for them, out of love for them. But that Christians wouldn't bow their head in prayer and close their eyes or otherwise pretend 
to be praying when a Muslim friend or Hindu friend or Buddhist friend or some other friend is praying to their God. Be respectful of them in their religious activity, of course. Neighbor love demands respect to them as they engage, but we don't pretend or act like we are joining with them in what amounts to, on their behalf, a prayer to a different God when we come to God, God the Father, through God the Son, by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it is regrettable, frankly, to hear many Christians leave off any reference to Jesus whatsoever in prayer. Now I get that in your heart of hearts as a Christian, you're praying to Jesus. But we do come to the Father through the Son, and rightly and appropriately do we mention our dependence upon Him to be heard. So I think that's one application of the principle for us, friends. Notice Paul doesn't say you can do these things if you have good intentions. It doesn't what matter what your intentions are. What matters is the actual activity. You cannot do both. They're incompatible and it's inconceivable that you should actually try to do both. And if you eat at the table of demons, you are rejecting Christ. And if you come to this table, you are rejecting the table of demons, the so-called gods of this world. That's the second reason we must flee idolatry. The third and final is this. We must flee idolatry, not only because it's inconsistent with the Lord's Supper and because it involves people in the worship of demons, but it's offensive to the Lord and provokes him to jealousy. It's in, we're in danger, anyway, of provoking him to jealousy. Do you want to make the Lord jealous? Paul here is picking up the language of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 and 17, which reads... This, in the Song of Moses, it reads this. They stirred him, God, to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. That's the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The interesting thing about that quotation in Deuteronomy is that the passage isn't talking about the pagan neighbors of the Israelites. It's talking about the practice of the Israelites who had strayed into idolatrous sin. And so that is what Paul means when he says you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He doesn't mean you couldn't actually physically do it. Some of these Corinthians were going to the Lord's table and back into the temple. But he means you cannot get away with it. You cannot do it unscathed, unharmed, without consequence. You can no more do these things and remain unaffected than you could stick your hand in fire and expect not to get burned, Paul says. God will be provoked to jealousy And he will defend his honor. And he will defend his bride whom he loves, his church. And he will not permit his people to go unchecked off the deep end in this way. Now I realize jealousy in speaking of the Lord, and we read it in the commandment, second commandment earlier in the service as well as here, sounds to us like a sinful human emotion. I think probably sometimes, at least when you think of jealousy, you think of like... 
those seventh grade crushes you had on people and and you got jealous when somebody else had a crush and they said yes to that person and you and you 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 know, got inflamed with with disappointment and anger and frustration and and uh, ridiculously thought in some ugly, selfish, possessive way that, well, they have no right to do that. They ought to be mine. I mean, that's sinful, wicked, immature jealousy. We, I think sometimes that's what we think jealousy always and only is. But there is a righteous kind of jealousy. Let any married man who loves his wife ask himself how he would feel to discover that she is cavorting around town with other men while he's away. He would feel anguish in his heart. He would be grieved and aroused to jealousy. And he would say, her love was promised to me. She is mine and I am hers and I promised her my love. No husband who truly loved his wife could endure to share her with another man. And so... The Old and the New Testaments proclaim it. The Old Testament Israelites is the wife of Yahweh and they provoked him to jealousy. And the New Testament church is the bride of Christ and we're we're in danger of provoking him to jealousy. God is our husband. And he is the one to whom our supreme affections are due. He is a husband who loves as a good husband ought to love his own wife. And now the strange truth is that this warning about his jealousy is just what we need not to run in fear from him, but actually to flee idolatry to him. For the only way to avoid the false gods is to have the true God enthroned supreme in your heart. And the only way you'll think so highly of him is if we see that in the midst of our failure and sin and recognizing what poor lovers we are and what great idolaters we are, that in the midst of recognizing how hopeless we are and how incapable of ultimately doing anything about it we are in the midst of this, We see his love for us. Our Savior loves us with a jealous love. And he would not have anything come between God and God's people to keep the bride from belonging to the husband. And so what did he do? With all the zeal of righteous love, he gave himself for us in death. To give himself to us in life. That we may belong to him and he to us. That we may be one with him and he with us. And that growing recognition of the wonder and the beauty and the goodness of the Lord is the engine that drives our pursuit of him. And which enables our flight from so many idols that threaten to capture our hearts. So let his strong affections for you actually drive your affections for him and flee from idolatry, idolatry, dear brothers and sisters, by fleeing to the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray.
Our Father, we bless you. You're much better at love than we are. And we thank you that you're faithful and that you're gracious and kind. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that in Christ you take our sins and you throw them into the depths of the sea and they are no more as far as the east is from the west. You remove them from us. Oh, capture our hearts with the love of Jesus that we might love him in return truly, sincerely. And more purely, for we pray in his name. Amen.